Well, good morning, Door Creek. Thanks for joining us here at our Sprecher Road campus. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. We're really glad that you've joined us. Today we're beginning a series for Christmas, and we're calling it Christmas in Isaiah. I know the last time you studied Isaiah, it's one of those big, long books in the Old Testament. It's written to us by Isaiah the prophet, whose name means Yahweh or Jehovah, the covenant-making God. He saves And he uh, had a long ministry that extended some 60 plus years as he served God's people in the southern kingdoms. Remember after King Solomon, the kingdom was divided, the 10 northern tribes, Isaiah speaking to the two southern tribes around Jerusalem and Judah there. Kings like Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And we read in chapter one, verse one, that he received special revelation through what he calls a vision. Think of like a dream, but a very experiential dream where he hears God clearly speaking to him that he might be God's mouthpiece to God's people, the prophet speaking for God. It's good to know that after the book of Psalms, when it comes to quoted books in the New Testament, Isaiah's the number one quoted book after Psalms. And Isaiah actually really informs Jesus' own ministry. In fact, this is wild. When Jesus starts his public ministry, when he introduces himself, he doesn't use his own words. He actually uses Isaiah's words, quoting from Isaiah 61. We read this in Luke chapter four. These are Jesus now quoting the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. And so it'd be wise for us to understand that followers of Jesus would do well to catch up with the teaching of Isaiah. Oftentimes it's called the gospel of the Old Testament. And it's filled with all these promises of Christ, hence Christmas in Isaiah, about his birth, about his names, his character, his mission, his sufferings, even his resurrection. When we think about Isaiah, though, he doesn't just connect us forward in the storyline to Christ, but Isaiah And understanding Isaiah is really helped when we understand it just flows and fits right in to the storyline of the Bible. And as we remember the storyline and the themes of the storyline, it'll actually help us find our way through a pretty complicated, long 66-chapter book. So you remember the storyline of the Bible begins at creation, right? We're created by God. We're created for God, we represent him, we we bear his image, and he's called us to fill the earth with his image, and with that, the blessings that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden to the ends of the earth. Adam and Eve rejected God's relationship and his leadership in their lives, and so they were exiled from God's presence, evicted from the garden, if you will. But in the midst of experiencing the sad consequences of their disobedience, God utters a word of promise. He says there's gonna be this wounded victor. He's gonna be a male descendant of Eve's who's gonna come and crush the enemy's head. 
What happens next is things actually go from bad to worse. Where in chapter six of Genesis, we read that every intention of the human heart was only always evil. And so God hits the reset button. There's a universal flood. But in his grace, he actually saves one man and his family, righteous Noah. And he asked Noah to do the same thing he asked Adam and Eve to do, to fill the earth and to spread the blessing of God to the ends of the earth. But what happens? The descendants of Noah didn't go out with the good news, didn't go out with hearts trusting God. Rather, they settled, built a great city, built a great tower to their own glory, and God tears it all down, and he raises up this guy named Abram, who's actually an idolater from Ur of the Chaldeans. He's an idol worshiper. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make your name great. The people of Babel trying to make their name great by building great things up to the heavens, that's not going to work. I'm tearing that down. I'm the one who makes names great. And I'm going to give you land. Just trust me, follow me. I'm going to take you to the land. I'm going to give you a ton of descendants. And then he says, and listen to this, I'm going to bless you so that all the families of the world would be blessed. Abram's later descendants are the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, right? The 12 tribes, Israel. We find them later in the storyline in Egypt, right? They've been saved from famine down in Egypt, but now they're enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt, and God delivers them. And he leads them out to the mountain where he makes a deal with them, a covenant with them. And the covenant terms were, I'm gonna be your God, and I want you to be my people, and here are the terms of the covenant. And it's the law that summarizes, you gotta love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the people of God say, we're in it. And Moses says, you're not gonna be able to do it. They say, we're in it, we're with you, God. Thank you for your deliverance. And then they turn their back on God and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But then God, true to his word, leads them into the land. And it's got like this garden of Eden abundance. And God says, I've chosen you. You're this tiny little nation from all of the nations to be my people, my treasured possession, my representative, so that through you, Israel, all the families of the world will be blessed. And what happens is this repeated failure, just as Moses had predicted, of God's people to continually turn their backs on God, and he raises up people that'll get their attention, and they turn back to God and then turn away from God and back and forth it goes, and that's where we are in the book of Israel, in the book of Isaiah. The people of God are rebelling against God. We'll read all about it. And yet, we're, we're wondering what's going to happen because they are his chosen instrument to bring salvation. And so we're going to jump into the Christmas story in Isaiah right in the beginning in chapter 1. So grab your Bible. And uh, as you turn to Isaiah, you might need the table of contents. It's a little right of center after the Song of, Solomon, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Isaiah chapter 1. Here's how this chapter divides out. Verses 1 through 15, there's a word of judgment. Verses 16 through 23, there's an offer of forgiveness. And uh, the third part is a message of hope in the final verses 24 through 31. So we begin with a word of judgment, which helps us understand this, that even religious people, good people, people whose lives are filled with religious worship and ritual need a savior. That's the title of our first message in the, Christ, 
in the Christmas story in Isaiah, the need for a savior. And that's where we start in the very beginning. Verse one, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the southern area of Israel, those lower tribes, that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's kind of the setting, it's like a courtroom, and he's calling, God is calling heaven and earth to be witnesses, okay? Here's what he says. I rear children, speaking of Israel, I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. <clears throat> my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. He's talking about Israel, not Egypt here. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So the courtroom is in session. The witnesses are in their seats. And now through Isaiah, his prosecuting attorney, and as you think about the prophets, that's kind of how they function. They're prosecuting attorneys. He brings the charges. And you could sum it up in one word right there in verse two. Rebellion. They've committed rebellion against God, treason, if you will, against God. They don't know God, they're not in a relationship. They know all about religion, but they, they don't know their Lord, their master. Even animals seemingly know better than Israel does. Their guilt is great, they're experts in doing evil, verse four, and he's describing the people of God, not Egypt, not Babylon, not Assyria, and as we hear it, the translation, the application here, he's talking to us, to the church, not to our culture, not to Western culture, not to the United States. He's talking to the church here. So we're dialed in, right? And what does he say? Their guilt is great. They've forsaken, they've spurned, despised, turned their backs. And they might disagree with his conclusions, but they won't be able to argue with the facts as he begins to lay it out. Before he lays out the facts, he, he reminds them of the consequences of what's happened to them. In verses five through nine, he says, look, you, you are suffering, you're being beaten because of your own disobedience to God and rebellion. You are spiritually sick, verse six, look, look at the imagery here. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, no health. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. So, so you are dreadfully sick, spiritually speaking, and, and you're almost flatlining. You desperately need to see a doctor. You need to get back to God. Then he talks about their national plight. Your country, verse 7, is desolate. Cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. He's describing national Israel as it's been plundered by their surrounding enemies. And he says, you know what? You're, you're, you're just like a city that's surrounded in siege. Go on. Verse 8, daughter Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. But in the midst of all these consequences that they're suffering because of their own disobedience and disregard for God, notice the word of grace. Verse 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, 
we would have become like Gomorrah. So true to its character, faithful to his promise, Abram, I'm gonna bless you, said all the families of the world will be blessed through you and your family. He didn't wipe them all out like he did the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have. They deserved it. He's going to say in verse 10 that actually your behavior is just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in his grace, he relented. And he spared a remnant, a part of Israel, to be the instruments of his saving purposes in the world. When you get to verses 10 through 15, you got it? Here he starts to get specifics about the charges of their rebellion. And it's interesting that he begins with their worship. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The word instruction there is Torah, the law. The multitude, notice it's the multitude, verse 11, of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling, this destruction of my courts, the temple? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your your incense is detestable to me, new moon Sabbath and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. And so he's focusing on the rebellion, specifically bringing up worship, and we just need to be jarred a little bit. Because what we're learning here is, it's not like they had an absence of worship. It says they had multitudes of sacrifices. That, that costs something. They went to a lot of festivals and assemblies that required commitment to time and resources again as they would give tithes to those feasts. You have many prayers that you've offered up, raising your hands to the heaven. So it's not the lack of activity, but it's a lack of connecting that activity to their heart. And so they're all about ritual. They're all about religion, but remember, they don't know God. It's almost as if a sense that their thinking is, the more of this stuff that we do, the better it's going to go for my life. Like, oh man, you know, things are going on in my life, it's not good. I think I, I haven't been to church enough. I haven't done this enough. I got to do that. I got to do that. Then so we never do that, but they did that back then. <laughs> So he's going, he's calling them out. And, and, and he makes it really clear in the abundance of religious practices where there's this multitude of sacrifices, prayers, and festivals, God says, no pleasure in it. You're destroying the temple. Your offerings are meaningless and your, your special services are worthless. Not because it was wrong to sacrifice, to celebrate, and to pray. But they were abusing it and they're thinking that they can manipulate God. They're abusing it and thinking that that's all that God requires. God requires a heart of obedience and trust that manifests not just in a love for God, but a love for their neighbor. And we're going to see there's a radical disconnect going on. And he makes that point perfectly clear at the end of verse 15. What does it say? 
Here's why it's worthless, meaningless. Because these hands that you're bringing the lambs with, these hands that you're lifting up to heaven, well, look at them. They're guilty hands. Your hands are full of blood and injustice. You're not caring for the vulnerable. You're not defending the oppressed. So God's take is, stop it. I can't bear it. I detest it. I hate it. Your hands are full of blood. And so, look, court's open. The charges are laid. And at this point, we think, all right, these guys are going to get the guilty as charged. They're going to get sentenced. And it's game over for Israel. There's not even a plea bargain here. But what there is, is a surprising offer of forgiveness. Right in the midst where God has made his point, you guys, you've turned your back on me. Your worship is bogus. It's pretend kinds of stuff. It's all this external stuff. It's not from the heart. And the reason I know it's not from the heart is because you're trashing your brothers and sisters, even the most vulnerable. So from there, we have this offer of forgiveness. And here we learn how God makes guilty sinners white as snow. And this offer comes in the midst of their rebellion. We remember that. So pick it up in verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. He's given instructions. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. See, these are the things that were missing in their worship. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Blessing. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So God says, come, let's settle the matter. The courtroom. He's, he's saying, let's, let's come, on, come up to the bench. You and me before God the judge. And uh, let me make it clear. You are guilty. Look at your hands. They're stained. You know you're guilty. I've just laid out the charges. You might not like it, but you can't deny it. These things are true. So he says to his people, clean up your act. Clean up your act. The clear instructions, remove your evil deeds. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. What is that? Seek justice. Defend the rights of the poor. Take up the cause. Fight for the vulnerable. And after that clear instruction of working and making themselves clean, he says, all right, here's my offer. I'm going to take that which is crimson red, like your guilt, and I'm going to make it white as snow. I'm going to make it white as wool. The consequences are clear if you don't take me up on the offer. If you do, there's blessing. You get the good things from the land. That's the sign of God's blessing. Eden, the promised land. You get the blessings of God. If you don't, you're going to be devoured by the sword. Your choice. But I'm, I'm holding out an amazing promise, an offer to you to make your guilty lives like white as snow. I loved what Matir said in his commentary on Isaiah, who reminds us that snow and wool are intrinsically white. Snow falls, and we know through some of the pollution, it'll turn gray, charcoal, and maybe worse, right? But we know freshly fallen snow is white. 
We don't have to color it. And what he's saying is God's offer here is to change their nature, to give them new hearts, not just to clean up their past, but to give them a new life. And how's that done? It's one thing to change your behavior, but how in the world do you change your past? That's always the critical question. It's always a great question to wrestle with yourselves or to ask someone as you're talking to them about the wonderful claims of Christ is what do you do with your guilt? You know, there's a classic scene in, in Macbeth where Lady Macbeth is always washing her hands because, you know, she, did, she didn't have to do it. Her husband did. He, said, he talked about how hard it was to, to wash off King Duncan's blood. And then she gets caught up in all that and the guilt of her murderous uh, sin and she sees her hands. And remember that classic line of Shakespeare's out damn spots. She can't get them out. And neither can we, but man, we try washing, right? We try washing by just turning up the volume, lots of busyness. I don't want to think about the stuff in the past because it's so awful, the things that I've done. Or, or we go, I, I know how we're going to wash this stuff out. I'm just going to do a lot of good things, a lot of good things, because the more good things, then it's just going to replace the bad things. But at the end of the day, we know the good things don't erase the bad things. And so we try washing it out with success and being successful so we feel better about ourselves, right? Or we wash it out because we don't feel better with alcohol and drugs or, or seek it through pleasure, whatever that might be. But God is offering us in the gospel of Isaiah and through the scriptures, this unbelievable offer that nobody else can give you, no other religion can give you, that your guilty past, though crimson stained, by the grace of our God, through the gift of his son, can wash us white as snow. And that's what Isaiah is going to say through the book. This is how it happens. It happens through the promised Messiah, this one who is going to crush the enemy's head, Genesis 3.15. This one who is going to be the eternal son of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This one who is going to be born of a virgin, chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah, who would be called Emmanuel. This wonder counselor, this everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This one who'd come like a shoot out of the stump of Jesse, David's father. Out of something that looks dead, he's going to raise up this shoot, this promised savior who's going to rule in justice and righteousness. And his kingdom will have no end, we read in chapter 42. And in 53, verses 5 and 6, we understand perfectly how what is crimson red stain becomes white as snow. Isaiah 53 Speaking of Christ's sufferings, but he, this coming suffering servant, none other than Christ, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Think of the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, that's the Hebrew word shalom, well-being in all of life, was on him, the punishment on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I used to use this illustration when I was a high school pastor. This hand represents your life. 
This book, the Bible, represents everything you've done in your life. When you go through it, there's some good things and there's some not so good things, right? And here's God. Your relationship with God has been changed because of the not so good things. The Bible calls it rebellion and sin. And so you're separated from God. But the Bible tells us the good news of the gospel is that God knew our predicament. We were created by God, for God, a relationship with God, and we couldn't come back to God because of the things that we have done. And so he made a way by sending his son, his only son. And the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I'd say to the high school students, so, so where, where are your sins? On your hand or on Je- uh, they're on, Je- on Jesus? And they are if you trust that that's who Jesus is, the Son of God, and that's what he came to do, to die on the cross for your sins. So that through his punishment for our sins, through his piercing, through his being wounded, we could be made whole. We could be washed clean. The gospel in Isaiah. So there's a word of judgment. Religious people need God's Savior. There's the offer of forgiveness, how God forgives our sin and makes us white as snow. And here, the final movement in the chapter is a message of hope, how God is just and merciful, and how in his mercy, he will restore a group of people from within his people. So, notice, first of all, he punishes to purify the punishment that they deserve, the consequences of their sin, he's not gonna waste it, and he's gonna use the hard things in Israel's life to make him pure. Look at verse 24. Therefore the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel, declares, ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you, and here it is, I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Don't miss this. The people of God are called his enemies. God is not for his people when he rebels. He's against them. He's talking about he's gonna let his wrath, his righteous, holy anger be poured out on them. But it's all for a greater purpose that they turn back to him and that they would confess and and they would repent. And through that, as they respond to God's severe mercy, they would be purified. He's committed to restoring his image in his people. He is committed to his promise to Abram that he will use Abram's children to bring blessing to all the nations. In verses 26 and 27, he restores justice and he restores the city with justice. At one point, he, he called them guilty of prostitution spiritually. They've abandoned God, and they've gone and worshiped all these other idols. He talks about it. I will restore your leaders, verse 26, as in the days of old. Remember what you know about the, the leaders? They were corrupt. They were hungry for bribes. They had abandoned the role of defending the vulnerable, right, in upholding justice. He says, I'm gonna restore this corrupt leadership as in the days of old, your rulers, as at the beginning. They're gonna rule under me as I have always wanted. And afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, Not not a whorehouse, not a city full of prostitutes, spiritually speaking. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones, those who are repentant, 
have this change of mind that leads to a change of action. They turn back to God, the one they've turned their backs from, the penitent ones with righteousness. But he's very clear here. If they continue in their sin and don't take him up on his offer, here's what will happen. But rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks. That's where they worshiped under the trees in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. And so there's shame here as they were worshiping other idols under the trees. And it reminds us of the shame of Adam and Eve who covered themselves up because they took the fruit of the tree. Remember what I was saying about, remember the storyline. He's connecting the dots. And when they took the fruit in the garden, guys, that, that was idolatrous. That was like, we're king. We know best. They were worshiping themselves. He says in verse 30, you'll be like an oak, but not the oak of righteousness that stands tall for centuries that he's gonna talk about later. He's, you're gonna be like a dying oak. What does it say? With fading leaves. Like a garden without water, parched and shriveling. That's the image of what you're going to be like, people of God, if you don't turn back to me. The mighty man, you rebels, you're so strong, think you don't need God. Well, let me tell you what your future looks like. You'll become tender. Think of kindling. Something that just goes up real quick with just a little light of the match. In his work, a spark. All that he's worked for, all that she's worked for in this world will be like a flittering spark that dances over the fire and then just disappears. But it doesn't just disappear because what does he say at the end? Both, the man and his work will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Eternal separation from God. Your choice, because you didn't think you needed the Savior, God's Savior, even Christ. So it's very important for us to see what God is doing here. When he disciplines his rebellious kids, he does so to refine them and to bring them back, that he might restore them to the relationship with God that they were meant to have that they might be restored to his work in this world. So how do the people in Isaiah's day hear the message? So we always remember this, right, when we're reading the Bible. Isaiah, this is the 8th century, so this is 700 years B.C. So what is that? Short math. 2,700 plus years ago. My words. What are we going to do? How, how in the world do we take an ancient scripture like this and figure out what does this mean for us today? And there's always a straight line. You go back to the original audience. And so we ask the question, how did the people in Israel's day hear this word? And to be sure, they heard it as a stern warning. They heard it as this wake-up call, this stinging rebuke, this slap on the face. This God is shaking him and saying, wake up. Wake up to the true standing that you have with God. That is, you don't have one. Wake up to the fact that you worship God in a worthless manner and you think it's all good, but it's bogus because you haven't coupled it with your love for your neighbor. 
Wake up to the consequences of what you're going through. You think I've been unfaithful. This isn't about me. This is about you. This is why you are where you are, because you've turned your back on me. This is a wake-up call that got them crystal clear in, in what is true, their spiritual condition, their circumstances, the character of God. That he's not just just and bringing judgment as judge, but he is merciful and kind and compassionate. And that's how God has revealed himself throughout. There are people that go, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the same God who sent his only son to die on the cross. And when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven, we read this. Because Moses is saying, God, I want to see you. I want to know what you're like. He says, I'm going to tell you what I'm like. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate is the first thing he said to Moses. I'm compassionate. Compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, that the context there is generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, He's not just merciful. That's one side of God's character. The other side is he's always just, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so what do we do with this text, 2019, this Christmas season? We first of all remember this, that no matter how religious we are, no matter how good we think we are living our lives, whatever that moral code that you are adhering your life to, good people, religious people, people who are in church listening to me right now, we don't just have a savior, which all of us kind of come to Christmas going, that's Jesus, we have a savior. It's radically different to say, I need that savior. I need a savior. I didn't just need it back when I trusted Christ as a little guy. I need Christ every day of my life. I need the savior. And only he can make us white as snow. And so the offer is there. And God's word is living and active. Hebrews 4.12 says, so God, through his prophet, is speaking to us. And he's reminding us that our hands are stained. And that we can't wash the stain away. And then if the stain isn't addressed, it's gonna be like a melanoma that takes us out. But he's made a way and he's invited us to accept his offer of his son. We need a savior. Would we acknowledge that? Have you done that? Jesus, I, I, I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died to take the punishment of my sin. I want to live for you. Emmanuel is God with us and Jesus gave us his spirit so God is in us. So we have the power to do verse 17 to stop doing wrong because we're learning to do right and we wanna do right and we've got the power of the spirit to do right so that we can seek justice, not just know what is not just. We can defend the widows and the orphans and the oppressed and fight for them and plead for them. And I don't know about you, but after receiving the gift of God's grace, 
The loving God with all my heart in worship, like we're doing right now, that seems to be a lot easier part than figuring out what it means to love my neighbor as myself when it comes to seeking justice. Not just knowing what is unjust, unjust. To defending the oppressed. Not just knowing who is oppressed. To actually getting in the fight for them. I find that extremely difficult. I don't ever want to lose the tension of I cannot be worshiping God with my whole heart if I don't love my neighbor as myself. And it's more than a Christmas open house. And we live in a city where there's injustices all over systemically and it's happening to people in their very lives. It's happening to a lot of us right here. And true love and worship of God is matched and united with a love for our neighbor. And that's what God's about. He's about renewing and restoring all things in this world. Creation is groaning for the things of this world to be made right. Because global warming and anything else that's going on here reminds us that this is a broken world. This ain't heaven. This ain't the promised land. But we are called in the midst of the brokenness of this world to join God in restoring all things to himself, which includes all people, which includes the vulnerable, the oppressed. We gotta keep leaning into that. What do we learn here? I think there's some lessons here for parents who've got rebellious kids. What did he call his kids, Israel? Rebellious children, right? And I fathered them. Wow, you get all kinds of clues from how God treats Israel and how we ought to treat kids who are running away from God and rebelling against God and maybe against us. And obviously there's a difference about young kids, like what I was doing in junior high when I was a hot mess, and when they're 30 and out of the house, or whenever they're out of the house, hopefully before 30. (laughs) There's a big difference. But what do we learn? God is moving towards his people. He doesn't hit the reset button in the prophets. That's that's a Genesis 6 thing. That's something he said, I'll never do again. He's always moving toward his rebellious children. He's moving towards Judas, what he calls him friend. He's extending truth and grace through the prophet. He's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them that they're loved by God, they're the people of God, that they're out of relationship, that they need to come back into relationship. He's reminding them that the consequences that that stink in your life right now are because of your relationship with God, which is not a relationship. And he's laying out the consequences. And he's laying out the offer of hope and forgiveness that is ours through God's merciful gift of his son. Huge, huge parenting lessons. Do you know about Romans 2.4? I say this all the time if I talk to a parent who's dealing with kind of things. This is like, this is your construct. Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads to repentance. So what do I want to do? I want to be an expert in the kindness of God. And that's our cue as parents, as siblings. For our best friend who's walked away from Christ, you be the kindness of Christ and how we live our lives, our lives full of grace and truth like Jesus. And the last thing we learn here is, Look, God's plan hasn't changed. 
What he asked Adam and Eve to do, he asked Noah to do. What he asked Noah to do, he asked the children of Israel to do. What he asked the children of Israel to do, guess what? He asked the church to do. Same plan. You bear my image. Let me restore that through Christ. And now, as you come into a relationship with me, I want you to take the blessings of Christ at whom's right hand are pleasures forever. In Christ, the one who said, I'm coming to give you life and give it abundantly. It's not just about the future stuff, but it's about right now. I, I'm, I'm asking you to be my representatives in this world so that the blessings that I said that I gave Abraham would go to all the families of the world. That's your job, church. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Same plan. And honestly, the same problem. We could be just about the kind of worthless religion. We could find our own sacred trees that we're worshiping under, kind of mixing it all up. A little of Jesus, a little of this. When our religion is worthless, we're not a light to the nations. And by the way, we can err on both sides of this today. Be all about religion and not about justice and mercy. But I wanna, I wanna say, especially to those of you younger, and there's nothing wrong. It is healthy for us to have eyes wide open to matters of justice and mercy. You just heard me talk about it. So, but we can err on the whole side of, we're so into social justice, but we don't understand what it truly means to love God with all of our heart, to walk with him in humble obedience where we're actually following God and taking him at his word. You see what I'm saying? We can err on both sides. And you know, this is simplistic, but generationally, I would say those of us who are older, be a lot more to err on the side of Israel. A lot of religious stuff. No wonder there's a lot of younger people that go, this is so broken, busted up, come on. But for those of you who are younger, you can just go down that social justice thing, you think you got it all right? That's just part of it. A heart surrendered in every part of your life, your sexuality, your money, your relationships, all surrendered to Christ. But praise God that he's given us his son. So we begin our Christmas series. And Isaiah, speaking for God, says the Christmas story is only good news if you understand that you and I, good people, religious people, church-going people, need a savior. Let's pray. God, if we didn't have your word, we, we just lose our way time and time again. And so we thank you that your word is that double-edged sword. We thank you that it is your living word breathed out by you, that it teaches, it reproves us, it corrects us and gets us back on the line and it trains us in righteousness. And so we bless you for your word, even the word that you gave to the prophet Isaiah, which is such a good, important word for us. And we pray that you would open our eyes to the need that we have. I pray for the strong person listening who's described as this mighty man. Lord, that they would understand they are completely incapable of dealing with those damn spots. I, I pray that they would get a glimpse that maybe 
all that their life is about and all that they pursued in their life is just going to go up to the heavens like a, a dancing spark and be nothing. Grant faith, strengthen faith, and strengthen us as a church to love you and our neighbor well. Open our eyes to injustice. Help us to know what it means to seek it, to defend the oppressed, to plead, to fight for it. And help us not to get overwhelmed by it all, but to start with the ones that we know. And if we don't know any of them, Lord, lead us to those relationships where we can be your hands and feet. Until you come or call us home, this is our prayer. Amen.